Well, good morning again, Lindsley Avenue. Appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you this morning. Last week, we talked about the birth of Jesus and how important that was not only to God and the plan that he had had in place before the world began, but how important it was to each and every one of us and how important it still is. This morning, I want to continue with a study of the life and teaching of Jesus, Jesus' life and teaching. So come along as we take a look at this for the next few minutes. First of all, I recognize the futility and the craziness, if you will, of trying to summarize Jesus' life and teaching in only one week, in only a few minutes. The whole idea is really absurd, but we're going to try it anyway. So the real question is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Why the incarnation? Why the birth of Jesus, as we talked about last week? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. When you look at 1 Timothy 1.15, we read, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, worthy of acceptance by everyone, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's our answer. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, we read, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. In that great chapter of parables about finding that which was lost, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why did Jesus come? To save us from our sins, to save sinners. Well, when you're thinking about it, how do we reach sinners? How did Jesus reach sinners? If He came into the world to save sinners... How did he accomplish that? And what can we learn from what Jesus did? Well, I want to suggest an overall theme to the study of how Jesus reached sinners with this kind of language, by breaking down barriers. I believe you can look at the entire revelation of Jesus' life and see different barriers throughout his life that he broke down in order to reach people. And I think that will have application for us today. First of all, by breaking down barriers that had been built up between Jew and Jew. By Jesus' time, boundaries between Jewish groups had become pronounced. We typically notice that when we're reading through the New Testament, when we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But it was much, much more pronounced overall than that. From the Pharisees' point of view, every Jew who failed to abide by their rigid understanding of purity was characterized as lay mitzvot which means not concerned with ritual purity, and la Torah, which means ignorant of the law. If you didn't follow their rules and regulations, you were really not only not one of them, but you were away from God. From their perspective, these people who did not follow those rules and regulations were considered untouchable, fathers of impurity, whose very clothes transferred uncleanness to anyone unfortunate enough to touch them. The Pharisaic habura, or the fellowship meal, had to be eaten in absolute ritual purity according to these rules and regulations. And so it placed a, a very distinct barrier between 
these people that were following these rules to be what they considered holy and the, the, everyone else, those that were the people of the land, the Am Harats, the Am Harats. A definite division between those who observed these rules and those who did not. And given that the Pharisees were only about 6,000 members large in the time of Jesus, nearly everyone else was a member of the great unwashed mass of humanity, or at least Jewish humanity. From the Pharisees' perspective, these Amharets, these people of the land, were simply cut off from the kingdom of God. People falling between the cracks that separated many of the major sects or groups in Jesus' day, such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots, probably felt a great deal of anxiety about their spiritual status before God. They had to have felt very marginalized. The great large group of people weren't the Pharisees or the Sadducees in Jesus' time. They were the people of the land, the great masses of people who really just kind of wondered, how can I be saved if I am not a member of one of these groups that seem so important? The fact that there were two separate roads or routes to the temple, a high road for the pure and a low road for the Amharets, the ordinary people, would have sent a very negative message to many of the worshipers attempting to go before God. The social and religious disruption so characteristic of Jewish society in the time of Jesus may have led many common people to wonder who then can be saved indeed. Who then can be saved if we are going to erect barriers between groups of people? In Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 26, Jesus directed a series of seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. The Greek word for woe is hard to translate because it includes not only wrath, but also sorrow. There's certainly a righteous anger here, but it is the anger of the heart of love broken by the stubborn blindness of men and women. Jesus' condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees is that they're not only failing to enter the kingdom themselves, but they've shut the door on the faces of those who would seek to enter. So what did he mean by this accusation? When people tried to find entry into the kingdom, the Pharisees presented them with thousands and thousands of rules and regulations, which was as good as shutting the door in their faces. Who then can be saved if it takes all this merely to come before God? The Pharisees preferred their ideas of religion to God's ideas of religion. They had forgotten the basic truth that if a man would teach others, you must first listen to God yourself. And there's something there for each of us to make sure we are paying attention to. So what did Jesus do when it came to these divisions in Jewish society? Look at Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then in Luke 19, the famous story of Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 5 through 10. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus said to him, Today, to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to your house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What did Jesus do? He went to the people who were lost. Jesus also broke down barriers between Jew and Samaritan. Not only had there been erected barriers between Jewish people, barriers that excluded the great majority of Jewish people in Jesus' day, there had been a very, very strong barrier erected between Jew and Samaritan. Samaritans in Jesus' time, they were publicly cursed in the synagogue by the Jewish rabbis. Uh, they, the popular route from Galilee to Judea went around Samaria, so there would be no need for any interaction or any potential uncleanness, any running into someone who was different than you were. The Samaritans could not become a proselyte. The Jewish people don't actively proselyte. In the, they certainly didn't in the time of Jesus. And in fact, they would tend to try to talk someone out of becoming a Jew. Samaritans were not even allowed to have the discussion. You're a Samaritan? This is not for you. Samaritans were forbidden to intermarry with Jews. They were forbidden to offer sacrifices in the Jewish temple. They were excluded from any afterlife, much like the Gentiles. They were created, the view was, to fuel the fires of hell. And they were denounced as not being of Jewish birth. I think you're beginning to get the idea here that was very popular in the time of Jesus. And they could not serve as a witness in any Jewish court. The word of a Samaritan was just flat out worthless. Jews would not eat or drink from any utensil used by a Samaritan. It was considered unclean. Now notice what that will say here a little later on. So what did Jesus do? Well, in John 4, consider the woman at the well. There's little wonder at the state of bewilderment of the disciples when they came back from town after they had gone in to try to find some things that they needed, when they come and they find Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Remember what had happened at that well outside of Sychar. Jesus had asked the woman, give me some water to drink. Well, water from what? It would have been from her implement, her jar, her bucket, whatever she was using to draw the water out of. And he would have been drinking from a utensil, if you will, that was a Samaritan utensil. We had just read a moment ago Jewish people did not use utensils, cups, plates, saucers, jars that had ever been touched by a Samaritan. Jesus said, give me some of this water to drink. He had already started breaking down the barrier between himself and any Samaritan. Here Jesus is actively taking the barriers down. He speaks to Samaritans. He does not curse them. He asks for a drink from her utensil. He acknowledges past divisions but says changes will soon be here that will make these past divisions irrelevant. The current state of affairs was that there was a division between Jew and Samaritan. Won't last for long. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. In Luke 17, 11 through 19, the story of the cleansing of the ten lepers. We remember that there were ten lepers. It says, the text says, they stood afar off. The Jewish law required them to stay at least 50 yards away, half a football field. I would certainly call that a far off. They were social distancing back before it was popular. 
There was at least one Samaritan in the group. We know that from the way the story plays out, that the one who comes back to express gratitude is a Samaritan. We don't know for sure if any of the other individuals in this group of ten were Samaritans, but certainly not all of them were Samaritans, or else the surprise that the one who came back being a Samaritan wouldn't have been that strong. If it had been ten Samaritans, if anyone came back, they would have been a Samaritan. Uh, that doesn't fit the way the narrative is related to us here. There's at least one Samaritan in the group. Here, because of their leprosy, I want you to notice the barriers between Jew and Samaritan had been broken down. These outcasts had bonded together. The divisions that had existed in their previous lifetime when they, before they had leprosy that would have existed between Jew and Samaritan is not nearly as important now that we're all lepers. And so the past has been forgotten, and now they are merely considering, considering themselves lepers. They are healed, but only physically. Their hearts have not been healed because only the Samaritan shows gratitude. The other nine had run off to the priests as they were supposed to do by the law. In some ways, it's so hard to blame them because leprosy was so much like a death sentence, death to the life you knew before, as well as the physical ailments that were going on within your body. The Samaritan came back and expressed gratitude. So I want to ask you, I want you to imagine a week, month after this situation. What do you think might have happened if these men had run into the Samaritan man again once they were healed? Do you think they really responded, Joey, I can't believe it's been a week. Can you believe we were healed? I really doubt that. I really suspect strongly, knowing how people almost always are, that they would have fallen back into those ways of thinking that they had before they contracted leprosy. It wouldn't be hard for me to imagine at all that if there were nine Jews in this one Samaritan that they were not having anything at all to do with each other. That's how hard it is to tear down these barriers once they are built up. Uh, I really don't think the Jewish men would have kept company with the Samaritan individual. So here's a question. Do I think about and treat people as individuals or members of a group? When I see someone, do I think of this person as not an English speaker? Do I think of this person as without a home? Do I think of this person as a member of a different country? Do I think of this person as smart, not smart? How do I think of them? Do I put them into a group or do I see people as they really are, which is an individual created in the image of God? We cannot allow ourselves to see people merely as people of a group, member of a group. We have to see people on the streets of our town where they are, which is struggling individuals that God loves intensely. We will never succeed in bringing the word of God to the lost of our world if we view people as members of a group. Can't do that. We cannot do that. Was this Samaritan we're talking about? Was he a father? Was he a husband? Could he have been a murderer? Maybe he had had a really uh, bad set of choices in the past. Was he a good man, a thief, or is he just a Samaritan? Have you ever wondered if that man was a father? I suspect, like me, that in all the times I had read this before the thought came up, I had simply thought of him as a Samaritan. He's a human being created in the image of God, and Jesus had time for him and the Samaritan expressed gratitude. I have something to learn from that circumstance.
how to reach sinners, breaking down barriers as well between Jew and Gentile. Barriers between different groups of Jewish people, barriers between Jew and Samaritan, barriers between Jew and Gentile. There were two different captivities in the past of the people of Israel, the Assyrian and Babylonian, and then the Persians took over and they were quite different. They allowed the Jewish people to come back from captivity, to build their temple and to worship more or less as they wanted as long as they paid taxes. Alexander the Great came in and conquered most of the known world. He left behind him four generals, two of whom were fighting each other with the land of Israel in between. One of them is the general who became the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. All of you know the last member of the Ptolemaic dynasty because that was Cleopatra. She was the last vestige of that long descent, several hundred years. And then a strange-looking word, the Seleucids. They were over in Babylon and Syria. And when they were fighting, if you think about the way the map looks, they were fighting, it was almost always in the middle where the land of Israel was. Uh, it turns out in about 167, 170 B.C., there was a really evil king of the Seleucids named Antiochus Epiphanes. He decided that his empire needed to be one people. No more of this Jewish religion and Greek religion, no, 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 we're all going to be one people. The Jews called him Epimenes, and you can read right there the word that meant. They made fun of his name by suggesting he wasn't as smart as perhaps he should have been. Antiochus came in and decided he's getting rid of Judaism. He sacrificed a pig on the temple altar. He rededicated God's house to be a temple to Zeus. He also sold the high priesthood to the high bidder. He, called, he is called the wicked root by writings of the time. City sophisticates began taking on these Greek and pagan ways and began outing their observed neighbors who continued on with the traditions of their fathers, the traditions of the law. Then there's a rebellion. Mattathias, a former priest, a retired priest, and his sons led a rebellion. They all soon die, but they regain their independence for the first time since the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians a long time before. The temple was rededicated in December of 165 B.C., and they instituted a feast to remember this by. This is, in fact, the Feast of Dedication that we read about in John 10, 22. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and attended a feast when it was winter. There are no feasts in winter on the Jewish calendar other than this one celebrating the rededication of the temple in 165 B.C. These books of the Maccabees detailing these events were publicly read at this feast. Today, this feast and this celebration is called Hanukkah, of all things, which means dedication, thinking back again to John 10, 22 with this feast of dedication. The temple was lit up all during this feast, visible from all of Jerusalem. Josephus, the historian, called it the Festival of Lights. What a time it must have been. Well, the Jewish people resented losing their independence because they had it here in 165 B.C., and then they fell to the Romans. So I want you to imagine, what causes a change in you know, God telling the Jewish people to love the stranger dwelling in your land and remember it because you were strangers in the land of Egypt to hating Gentiles, which is so common in the New Testament. Part of it is Antiochus that we were just talking about. Part of it is Rome having been in control of their land since 68 B.C. What does Jesus do with this hatred that was so prevalent 
Sorry for the history lesson. But with that hate that is so prevalent between Jew and Gentile. His initial mission was to the Jews. He was to go to the sheep of the house of Israel. But, but, Matthew 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Would have been inconceivable to the rabbis. When Jesus heard this, the man says, you don't need to come. Just say the word and he'll be, he'll be cleansed. When Jesus heard this, said by the centurion, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And to the centurion, Jesus said, look what he said to the centurion, a Gentile. Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at the very same moment. When Jesus encountered a barrier, can you tell what he does every time he encounters it? He pushes it aside. He breaks it down. Terrible, terrible hatred between Jew and Gentile. Jesus ignores it. He knocks it down. He came into the world to save sinners by breaking down barriers that we had set up among ourselves between Jew and Jew, Jew and Samaritan, Jew and Gentile. When he talks and gives the Great Commission, he says, go teach the entire world. It takes a while, but the apostles eventually realize he means the Gentiles too. Yes, of course, he meant the Gentiles. He also broke down barriers between men and women. The Jew in his morning prayer, the Burkhart Hatshadar, uh, thanked God that he was, had not been made a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That prayer is still made today. When I had the ability to visit a synagogue, the morning prayer that went up included that very statement. They were making it in Hebrew, and I do not understand Hebrew, but the English translation I was provided, they still to this day thank God that they had not been born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In the eastern lands, it was often possible when you saw a family on a journey, the father would be the one mounted on the donkey or the animal, and the mother would be walking probably beneath a burden. When I had been in Africa, you would see the men sitting on the front porch, the front uh, uh, steps of the house, and if you kept driving a little bit, you would see the mothers, often with the baby on their backs, bent over, digging in the ground. Very little has changed in some parts of the world in 2,000 plus years. Matthew, in this amazing kind of circumstance where women were really second-class citizens, women had no rights, owned either in a sense by their husbands or their fathers, Matthew presents, however, Jesus' genealogy with a series of women, which again would have been unthinkable. And these women all have troubles in their past that they were still included in the genealogy. For example, you have Rahab, who had been the harlot of Jericho, but yet who saves the spies, and she is held up as a hero of faith. Ruth was not even a Jewish woman. She was a member of, of the uh, group of people from Moab. She was a member of an alien people. She is in the genealogy of Jesus. You have Tamar, who was a deliberate seducer and an adulteress from Genesis 38. And then, of course, you have Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, the woman whom David seduced from Uriah, her husband, who David then had murdered. All of these women are in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. What did Jesus do? 
When you think about the recording of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been called the Gospel of Women for things such as the birth of Jesus being told from Mary's point of view. We talked about that last week. Last week we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke. It is in Luke that we read of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, Mary's relative, of Anna, the older woman waiting for the arrival of the Messiah in the temple, of the widow of Nain and Jesus' compassion on a mother who had lost a child, of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee, wiping her feet, we're told, with her tears. And don't forget, not in the Gospel of Luke, but the woman taken in adultery in John 8. Woman, where are your accusers? Who accuses you of this? No one, Lord, then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Women are not relegated to any sort of second-class status within Christianity. Christianity transformed the life of women compared to the culture around it and still does to this day. And of course, remember the statement in the New Testament where there is neither male nor female. Every individual on the face of the earth, whether male or female, is created in the image of God, and God wants to come to a knowledge of him. Jesus broke down barriers, did not see barriers that people had erected between men and women. The most important barrier Jesus broke down is the barrier that we set up between ourselves and God the barrier between God and man. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can't have a reconciliation with a wall between you. Think of the families, if you're old enough to think of the Berlin Wall, families that have been separated, or today families that are still separated by the dividing line that's in North and South Korea. You cannot have a reconciliation when there's a barrier. The barrier between ourselves and God is a barrier we set up with our own sin, our own choices. Without Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, there is no way I would ever have been able to get that barrier taken down. No way. But look, we have now been justified by his blood. We have been reconciled to God. God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus, and we are saved by that life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word, world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We all need to be terribly, terribly thankful that God does not count our transgressions against us. And then finally, in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We once were alienated, separated from God with a barrier that we put into place. 
Jesus came in and broke that final, most important barrier down. What's the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus? If you find a wall, knock it over. If you find a barrier between different people, put it out of the way. We cannot keep building walls between us. As the poet said, a wall might make a good neighbor, but it does not make for good brothers and sisters. Cannot do that. The most important barrier of all had finally been broken down. So lessons for us, last two slides. Jesus did not live a life of detachment, but involvement. We cannot sit in our comfortable, cool houses and expect to win the world for God. We can't do it. He lived a life of involvement. How involved am I in what goes on around me? That's a hard one. I suspect that's a hard one for many of us. He lived where he could see human sin, see human diseases, and observe human mortality, poverty, and squalor. He did it because he was living among the people, where the people were, the people who were sheep without a shepherd. Are we truly followers of Jesus? He taught men by coming alongside, alongside them, becoming one of them and sharing their environment and their problems. That's the only way people will ever listen to us is if they can see us as one of them, somebody that cares, somebody who is in the thick of it with them. For us as individuals in an affluent society, this can be a great embarrassment. We would prefer simply to not see what's going on around us. I suspect, much like the rich man, rarely saw Lazarus at his front gate. How can we minister to a lost world if we are not in it? I don't think we can. I don't think we can. How can we reach the poor if we are not there? Jesus came right alongside the people and shared their experience at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He broke down barriers. Do we make barriers or do we break them down? Do I build walls or do I knock them over? What's my life look like in that regard? If you are a member of God's family already, don't build walls. Please don't build walls. Look for ways to knock them over. Perhaps in so many ways, that is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. How can we all be, be one big happy family and members of God's family for busy building dividers between us? Knock them over just like Jesus did. If you're not yet a member of God's family, then that barrier between you and God is still there. It's a barrier you put up with your own choices. How do I know that? I did the same thing. Yet, yet, Jesus came to give you and me the opportunity to have that barrier taken out of the way so that we can be reconciled to God. To do that, you need to turn your life around, believing in what Jesus did for you. You need to die to yourself in a burial of water and be raised to walk in newness of life. You have that choice. Change your life and come home to God today. Thank you for listening. One of the important things that we do every Sunday is we come together and we focus on what Jesus did for us. We heard a few moments ago a passage from the book of Timothy where it said, 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance by everyone that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did that by living a perfect life and then by being the sacrifice to pay the price for the sins that each of us have committed and chosen freely to commit. When we partake of this bread that represents his body, we should examine ourselves, examine our lives, and ask, am I living the way I should since I have been reconciled to God? Things to think about as we pray and give thanks for the bread. Father, we are so thankful for the life and the death of Jesus, for the sacrifice that he made to give us the opportunity to have life with you and to come home and live with you. As we partake of this bread, we would ask you would help us to rededicate our lives to living each day with Jesus in our hearts among the people that you love so dearly and help us to always be thankful for that life and death of Jesus. Dear Son, we pray. Amen. In addition to the bread, we also partake of the cup, the fruit of the vine, as the text would say, to symbolize and have us focus on not only the body of Jesus hanging on the cross, but the blood that he shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's not our blood that has to be shed to pay the price for the sins, the choices we made. It was the blood of Jesus some 2,000 years ago that still offers forgiveness to you and me. And when we partake of this cup... We remember the sacrifice Jesus made, sinless that he was, so that we would not have to suffer the consequences of our own choices since we are members of God's family. Pray with me, please. Father, again, we are so thankful for the life and death of Jesus, the blood that flowed, that forgives sins. Father, please help us to... Uh, live our lives each day with uh, your Son in our hearts that we will focus on living for you and not living for ourselves. We thank you for this cup representing his blood. Again, Father, thank you so much for this incredible gift. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Not actually part of the Lord's Supper, but we also on uh, the first day of the week give as we have the opportunity, give as we have been prospered. We should always remember that God loves a cheerful giver, not someone that gives because they have to, because they have to. I don't know how you are giving in this time of separation, but if you have planned to, please continue to make your donations and your offerings uh, to the right place so that God's work can continue and people can be helped. Let's pray and be thankful once again for the blessings that God has given us. Father, we are so thankful to be so blessed to have the uh, blessings of this life and this country. Help us, Father, to not view these things as ours, but simply given to us to be used by us to help others and to spread the knowledge of your Son. Please help us be cheerful givers, Father, Father, and help us to always be thankful. To your Son we pray. Amen.